Oh, good afternoon, everyone. Certainly is a beautiful day today. Everything's white. Reminds me of the time when all the world will live in righteousness and in white holy garments. <clears throat> that fresh snow out there certainly is beautiful. I'd love to sit in the house where it's warm and watch it snow. But here we are. Such a privilege to get to meet on God's Sabbath. Uh, his commandments, nearly all the world say, are done away with, or they pay no attention to God, whatever. Uh, and yet this is one of them, to be able to keep the Sabbath. And what a joy and a privilege it is every week. By way of announcement, there is a sign-up sheet for Purim on the table by the stairs as you go into the kitchen. Uh, Tuesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. for finger foods, and Wednesday, March 16th at 7 p.m. for a formal dinner. So, not this coming week, but the week after, it'll be here. So, the sign-up sheet is by the door as you go toward the kitchen. Maybe a couple of notes here about world conditions and the scene and so on, so we kept kind of up on it. <coughs> I saw a note that gasoline has gone up to an average now of $5 a gallon in San Francisco, uh, So, and it's headed up everywhere else as well. How high is it going to get? And why is the question. Why is there a war in Ukraine right now? <clears throat> what we're doing is Joe Biden in Washington has shut down most United States oil production, shut down a critical pipeline, and made it where we became, again, ex uh, importers of oil instead of exporters, which would be become a few years ago. So now we have to depend on foreign oil. A lot of that comes from where? Russia. Somebody wrote an article about this and said, how do we figure out what's going on over there and why? Because you get all this propaganda in the air from the U.S. and from Russia as to what's going on. Follow the money. All right. We buy Russian oil, which finances the war for them. We're also giving billions of dollars to the Ukraine to finance the war for them. So both sides are getting billions of dollars from the U.S. of A. Just like past wars, like World War One and World War Two, where people in this country financed both sides of the war. They financed us, and they financed Hitler. Why? Because they make big money doing that. Russia is buying a lot of equipment. The United States is sending a lot of equipment, which has to be paid for. But who do they pay? They pay the billionaires of the world who are the elitists who are seeking world rule. 
So they sell equipment in Russia, and they sell equipment from America. And therefore, they get fatter and fatter and wealthier and wealthier. And it's often been said that fat old men in boardrooms wage war to kill young men. And that's what happens. They sacrifice a younger generation so that they can make money. That's what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Also, there's been quite a bit of talk about a lack of fertilizer this coming year. Uh, the nation of Hungary just cut off all their grain exports, and they provide a lot of grain for people who don't have it. Uh, there won't be any crop in Ukraine this year, and it's one of the biggest grain producers on earth, and probably not much from Russia because they won't export it. So what is coming is, you got a word in mind? Famine. What did Ezekiel tell us? Famine and pestilence. And <clears throat> this is being contrived. Satan is allowing, I mean, God is allowing Satan to do it, and war creates those conditions. There are many, many millions of people this coming summer who are going to be without food and start starving to death, and disease will come with it, and more diseases are probably going to be turned loose as well, just as COVID was. So things are getting grimmer day by day, and... Prices are going to start going up exponentially now here in the United States. Uh, the price of grain now is higher than it has ever been and going up day by day. And most of the things that you see in the store um, have at least a part of the product, some kind of grain, wheat or corn primarily, in our stores. Now, on top of this, We are trying to negotiate a nuclear treaty again with Iran. And guess who we chose as our negotiator? Russia. We asked Russia to negotiate a treaty for us with Iran. Now, do you think there's any possibility of any mishap or trouble or difficulty there, <laughs> when we have a declared enemy doing our peace negotiations with a avowed enemy, Iran. I've been wondering how Iran would come back into the picture because, at least as I see it at the moment, uh, they appear to be the Persians of Daniel 8. <clears throat> and a goat from the west will fly without touching the ground, and I think that probably has to do with us, and break the horn of the Persians or Iran, and then our horn will be broken. So somewhere in this milieu with the mess between the Russia, U.S., and Iran, uh, I could see that easily happening, uh, maybe Iran will attack Israel and work come to their aid. Who knows? But they're setting this thing up in the Ukraine uh, to usher in the next level of New World Order. And they may go to digital money to do it. 
and use Ukraine as an excuse because of the war there. And that the another thing that's happened this last week is Russia has gone back on the gold standard. They've been collecting gold by the ton for years now, and we have sanctioned them so that they are now kicked out of the swift monetary settlement situation with the world. So they've gone on the gold standard. Now people will want Russian money because it's backed by gold. And they won't want U.S. money anymore because it's backed by nothing. And India has now said that they want to continue their trade with Russia, so they are going to set up an exchange for rupees and rubles, bypassing the SWIFT system. I've been saying for years and years that when this petrodollar bites the dust, and they no longer have to have the dollar to settle uh, debts worldwide, we've had it because there's nothing there to back our dollar but the fact that everybody has had to use it. Now, we're telling uh, Russia, you can't use it anymore, and India is telling us we're going to use Russian money instead. So this thing, in spite of us bombing Gaddafi and bombing uh, Saddam Hussein and others to keep the petrodollar working, those who are in charge in Washington now have t turned and they are helping destroy our dollar and destroy our economy on purpose. It's the same people running the U.S. as is running Russia, as is running uh, China, as is running India and all the others. Now, bear in mind that God says this. It's not my political opinion. He says it will rise out of the sea, out from the people, and that it will have worldwide dominion. It will be as iron and miry clay. They won't get along completely with each other, but they're going to be organized and united, and the goal of all of them is to destroy Israelites, particularly Americans. They're not as worried about the nations of Northwest Europe or Australia as they are us. Uh, the people in Europe don't have many guns, and Australia has had their guns taken away, as pretty much as Canada. The United States is the powerful country, and our people have millions and millions of guns, and that is the primary thing that is holding them back. But there will be ways of defeating America without Americans being able to use those guns much. Now, there will be civil war, so they'll get used some. Jeremiah 50 and 51 show us that even our leaders will be killing each other, violence in the land. But all they got to do is a cyber attack, and they can shut off the electricity. They can shut off whatever they want to shut off. And they can do it where they want. They don't have to shut it all down, just what they want shut down. And the billionaires that run Facebook and that run Amazon and these different things are in on the deal. So when the word comes, they'll shut down whatever they want to shut down. Social media will go away, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. 
so that Americans can't communicate each, with each other on a, uh, that kind of basis. And an EMP attack could shut down our electricity, and then we're absolutely devastated. No food can be uh, transported, nothing. So God's prophecies are going to come to pass, and they are in the process of going to pass right now. Now, we've been reading about the breakup of the church and how God was behind it, and then we've been reading some other scriptures indicating that he is going to turn and bless it again. So let's go on into chap chapter 10 of Zechariah today. <laughs> he told us last week in chapter 9 that we're to go to the stronghold as prisoners of hope. We're prisoners of Christ as his slaves. We have volunteered to follow him and do whatever he says. That's in verse 12 of 9. And he will call us the flock of his people in verse 16. And as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. So in the promised land, he's going to lift up an ensign. We know that's the rubble bell from the last few verses of the book of Haggai. Uh, who will represent God as his representative on earth. Christ will be here dwelling with that remnant people, as Zechariah 2 clearly shows us. But he will have a human as the flag, the banner, the ensign uh, that the world will see. And then in verse 17, For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty, Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. So, just as we are transitioning, as we speak today, into famine on the world and on the United States of America, God is about to start blessing his remnant people, and he's going to gather with all the food they need. He says there will be milk and wine without money there in Isaiah 55. And many scriptures indicate how he is going to return the blessings to his church, be a wall of fire around it, a covert over it, and his people will be taken care of as physical Israel is destroyed. So we are right up on that now, and it can't be far ahead in the future until that occurs, because we're beginning to see famine and pestilence and disease come down on our nation. And what's happening in the Ukraine is making that far worse very quickly. So don't think that those men behind the scenes with their billions of dollars hadn't decided to start that war on purpose in order to shut off fertilizer, shut off oil and natural gas to Europe, shut off a lot of agriculture and cause the nations not to be able to produce, and there are millions of people on this earth who have no way to grow food and depend on it coming in. They're going to die. That's all there is to it. And a lot of those are going to be right here. One-third will die of famine and pestilence, and then one-third by the sword and the rest taken into captivity. So he's still talking to the church here. 
It hasn't changed from Zechariah 1 up until this point. There's been no context change. It's not talking about the millennium. It will apply in the millennium when physical Israel is again beginning to be blessed. But right now it is the, in the context of an end-time book. And the blessings that he says re- are returning here are to the remnant church. They're not to physical Israel, they're to spiritual Israel. So he says in chapter 10 then, Ask you of the eternal rain in the time of the latter rain. So the eternal shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. I look out as we're reading this this afternoon and there's precipitation then coming down this morning and maybe some more in the form of rain and even snow yet before this day is over. But traditionally in this part of the country, most of the rain and snow comes from January through April. That's a lot of it. There are some, a lot of showers scattered here and there through the summer, July and August, thunderstorms. But the primary amount of of rainfall comes at this time. I remember years and years ago at, uh, when we had a, an annual ministerial conference in Pasadena, January was typically wet. We often get rain during the conference. <coughs> so the early showers, the early rain comes starting into December, into January more. And the latter rains come through March and April. So what we're getting here is pretty much the latter rains for this particular area. And this is the one that counts. Now, we'll keep the thumb there and go back to Joel 2. We've read this many times, and it indeed is has been happening on a spiritual level, but it's going to soon turn to a physical level as well. It says in verse 21 of chapter 2, Fear not, O land. Why would you fear? Because there's a lot going on right now in the land that is fearful. But he says to his people in the promised land, Don't fear. Be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. He will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Eternal, your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now, I presume that means in April, which is when the first month generally hits. Now, sometimes he means January, because we have seen all kinds of things happen to the church in January, and then some things happen in April. I think this probably is primarily April, and 
He gave us great understanding in January of 96 beyond anything we had ever comprehended before, starting then and coming forward. And I think spiritually speaking, that latter rain started in January of 96. So this is partially fulfilled. Now, he also gave knowledge of where the true promised land is, where the true Jerusalem and Zion is, starting in April of 96. So we saw blessings come in January and April of 96. Now we have Passover coming up in April, and I can't help but think that some year, at some time, we're going to see some major events happen around Passover time. That's what, as I've said many times, Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 put together show a starting of signs and wonders, a plea to flee, not rapidly, but get it done. Then all that Christ went through at Passover time, and 54 then talks about lengthening the cords of your tents. There's a lot of people coming. So that seems to be the sequence, and Christ in the Passover right in the middle of it. So I've always leaned more to that being the time than any other because of that sequence of scriptures, as well as what it says here in Joel, the first month might be, in that case, April, Abib. And then it talks about the floors will be full of wheat, the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I'll restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. Now that could be spiritual, because it was spiritual uh, famine and disease that caused all the trouble in the church in the first place. But it also, then, is a physical thing, because we're seeing it now starting to come on us and the world. So we shall see how that all works out. But in Haggai, I think I referred to it just recently as well, we have the same kind of thing where God asks the question when it comes time to build the temple. He says, is this verse 19 of chapter 2? Is the seed yet in the barn? Yes, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. So at some point he is going to begin to truly bless. We haven't planted. Is the seed still in the barn? Nothing's going to grow until the seed comes out of the barn and is planted. And the trees won't, haven't been producing. Um, it's still dead quiet as far as the church is concerned. Pretty much everywhere. But things are going to come alive. God is going to begin to show fruit in the church. And it will be time to build the temple. And the remnant will see that fruit being produced and will show up to help do the work. As the rest of that book shows. I want to go with this, I think, maybe one more, back to Jeremiah 31. We've been over these scriptures many times, but 
let's put several of them together here in the context of Zechariah, which is all the way through an end-time book and even culminates in the return of Christ and the beginning of the millennium. Jeremiah 31. Talking about this same thing here. At the same time, says the Eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Um, we'll go up one verse above that. Last verse, verse 24 of chapter 30, it says at the very end of the verse, In the latter days you shall consider or understand it. What he's talking about here will be understood in the latter days. We are in the latter days, or call it the end times, whatever you want. But the latter days of this 6,000 years that man has been here, uh, we're in the latter days. At the same time, okay, he's talking about the same time here, the latter days. He's not talking the millennium, the latter days. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. So the spiritual sword has come on the church and has devastated us. But they'll find grace or pardon or favor in the wilderness. God's taking them to the wilderness. That's what he tells us in Micah 4. Leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness and there you will be delivered. That's where he's going to do it. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, this would be spiritual Israel, the church. He deals with it first. He says he'll draw us with loving kindness in verse 3. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets, and you shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry will be cheered with corn and wine, it said in the last verse of chapter 9 in Zechariah. Same language here. Verse 5, you shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. Plenty of food. Lots there. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal, our God. Now, he says, he will dwell at Zion. He says his place of refuge is Zion, and that's where his people will go. Now, this is at the time of the watchmen. When are they? You don't need watchmen in the millennium. You need them ahead of time. You need people watching right now what's going on and keeping us up to and with current events, what is occurring and what the prophecies say are about to happen. That's when you need someone watching is when there's danger, right? Once the millennium starts, there's no danger. Satan's put away. The demons are put away. Christ is ruling on the earth. There's no military around because they've all been destroyed in the Holocaust at the end of the age. So the time you need watchmen is before the millennium, where you and I are right now. That's why I tried to keep us up at the beginning of the service with just a, a few little comments about what's going on in the world, so that we're aware and apprised of and maybe it will help us in our prayers 
And of course, you read the news as well, so sometimes I'm telling you stuff you've already read on the same sites I get it, but I like to emphasize it and kind of summarize it a little. The watchman will stand upon the Mount Ephraim and shall cry, Arise you, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. That's where he is. That's where we need to go. For thus says the Eternal, verse 7, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And that's who he says he's going to gather is the remnant of the church. I'll bring them from the north from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame. Read Isaiah 35. It's perfectly right here. The lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear. The woman with child, and her that prevails with child together, a great company shall return. That's why he says in Isaiah 54, lengthen the cords of your tents. You've got to make room for more people. They're coming. They'll come with weeping and with supplication while I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. Our stumbling, our confusion, our frustration will go away when Christ is here as Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus Christ, or Jesus, means God is salvation. Emmanuel is more specific. And that's when he uses that term that he, I, that Matthew says they will call him Emmanuel. The places we see it being used are Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, right through there, when it says the Assyrian will come into your land, O Emmanuel, because he will be here, and it will be his land that he is overseeing at that time. And that's where his people will have gathered. And we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we started using that name some years back when this became obvious. And I think he is with us. He's not here living with us yet, as Zechariah uh, 2 tells us he will. <coughs> but he's certainly been with us and giving us information, knowledge, understanding, uh, he has been here doing that. So I think we can use Emmanuel already since he is with us that way, but it will be used probably almost exclusively when he's actually here and with us, dwelling among us, as he says. Uh, then he says, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, who are the firstborn? Firstborn of the church, 144,000. And there's quite a few of them living today. Quite a few have died in this age, and quite a few were in the apostolic era of the church, and so on. And then he says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, Reuben was the firstborn physically, but God has now called Ephraim his firstborn. And remember in Genesis 49, 
where he describes the nations, uh, Ephraim was running over the wall and having more blessings than anyone else. Well, look at the way it's been here in this end time. This nation has had more blessings than any other. We were given the best land on earth, uh, less poisonous snakes and things that kill you in the night than other uh, continents. Western Europe's pretty good that way too, but, but that's where Israel is as well. But Ephraim has been blessed way beyond what anything Western Europe has had or even England had. I have no doubt now they are Manasseh. The older brother and the, the younger brother, Ephraim, uh, was given more than the older brother. It, it just all makes sense. And it does here, because once you understand that this is the promised land, and this is where we all were at one time, then it's coming back here. And that's where they're going to cry out, is in Ephraim. For thus says the Eternal, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Now, where I get some of these comments that I make about how the two witnesses will go out and be able to point to those dwelling at Zion with the kind of blessings he's talking about right here, that is their message, or a lot of their message, to the world. The plagues, the deaths, the trouble only come after they preach righteousness. Only after they say, if you would serve God, you would have plenty to eat and you would have peace and everything would be right with you if you would serve God. That's the message. The message of the kingdom of God. Now, they will deny it. And when they deny it, is when the bad part of the message comes. You won't, so therefore, destruction. And it is immediate. Their blood turns, their water turns to blood. Uh, any of the plagues of Egypt can be pronounced upon them at will because they simply deny the message that God is sending. But it has to be the message itself, a message of hope, a blessing for obeying the eternal God. Has to be. That's why it says, publish it, say it. Behold, I will bring them from the north. Well, let's see, I'm skipping on down now. Verse 10. Hear the word of the eternal, O you nations, and declare it in the isles far off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. If we get that far into chapter, uh, in where we are in Zechariah today, you're going to see words just like this in Zechariah 10 and 11. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob and ran ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. He tells us in Isaiah 52, to quit laying down being walked on, but sit up and take stock of things. And that the Assyrian will go, and the Babylonian will no longer walk all over you. They won't anymore. He will give his church power as a new threshing machine, Isaiah 41 and Micah 4. They'll have power over the nations. 
For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the land of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the Eternal, for wheat, for wine, for oil, for the young of the flock, and of the herd, and their souls shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. See, there's the message that the world needs to hear. And they'll have an example of it in the heights of Zion, and that can be pointed to. Look at those people. Look at how God is blessing them, and how you can't hurt them. You can send all the planes you want, and they've got a covert over them. They've got a wall of fire around them. You can't touch them because of God. Now, if you don't listen, we're going to turn your water into blood. If you don't listen, you're going to have frogs, or whatever is pronounced at that particular day at that particular city. And then it'll happen immediately. They will see immediate cause and effect. Now, doesn't God say, I think it's in the Proverbs, that because judgment is not uh, given speedily, people don't pay any attention. But in this case, it is going to be speedy. As soon as you're done telling them all the good things they could have, if they don't say, okay, we repent, we'll serve God, then you turn loose the plagues of Egypt on them. Oh, there's cause and effect real fast. That's the way it's going to be. So they'll come and sing in the height of Zion and have plenty of blessings. Thirteen, then shall a virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. It'd be interesting to see some of our 80 or 90 year olds out there dancing. But God says he's going to cause us to have health and youth returned. I don't know whether they'll look old still, but have plenty of movement ability, or whether they'll look young again. We'll wait and see. It doesn't matter. If you, if you can dance, you can dance, no matter how you look. I'll comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. Well, the church has had an awful lot of sorrow. And that remnant that responds and does come is going to be blessed more than we were cursed. He says he'll render double. We may get to that today, I'm not sure. Double blessing for the amount of cursing that we had. And I'll satiate the soul of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. And God says that there was a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping, but that's going to change. Uh, verse 16, he says, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded. Uh, you know, you've been crying and weeping now for three decades. Just dry that up. Don't, don't need that anymore. They shall come again from the land of the enemy. Verse 17, And there is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that the children shall come again to their own border, come back into the promised land. 
I've heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. That's Ephraim is representative of the firstborn of physical Israel, but also of the church, because it's talking about the firstborn, and that will be the 144,000. I've surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, having to pull Make a living in a difficult way. Turn you me, and I shall be turned, for you are the eternal, my God. So we ask God to turn to us, and we will turn to him. Surely after that I was returned, I repented, and after that I was instructed. Now doesn't it say that when they repent and come, then the witnesses will teach them, there in Zechariah 4, pouring the golden oil out so they can be instructed in what they need to do now. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. We've gone through all this. Then God said, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him... I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. Now that's what he said in Zechariah 1 as well. <coughs> he spoke comfortable words. And he says in verse 21 then to turn back to where you came from. How long will you go about, O oh, you backsliding daughter? For the, the work, the eternal, has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Normally we think of a man courting a woman. Well, now it's going to be the woman, the church, courting Christ. It'll be turned around the other way. Of course, if she turns and has the right attitude, he will begin to court her as well. Uh, it says, just a little further down over here, that uh, chapter 33 or wherever it is, that if we will turn to him and be and find him, he will be found of us, as in Deuteronomy as well. So let's go back to Zechariah then. I wanted to cover those scriptures to show that all through the prophecies, what he's talking about here to the end-time remnant of the church in Zechariah 10 is what those other prophecies are also talking about, and they all agree. So he says, ask you of the eternal reign in the time of the latter reign. Now there is instruction. We're not supposed to just sit around and do nothing. He says, at the time of the latter reign, ask for it. We're supposed to ask God to return the blessings to us. We should be imploring him. We should be telling him, Father, and your son is your right hand. We are doing what we're supposed to. We are growing. We're overcoming. We're seeking you. Please turn and give us the former and the latter rain. It's something that is a commission to do. 
So do not omit to do what he commissions us to do. Ask for it. That should be part of our prayer. Regularly. Is to ask God to return the blessings that took away. Read the book of Lamentations. He says there over and over and over again, I did this to you. I was behind it. I'm the one who spewed you out, Revelation 2 and 3. So he is behind what has happened to the church. Not just the devil, not just the Fikachas. No, God, because of our spiritual condition, did this to us, and he makes it very clear it was him. And he also makes it very clear that when we repent and turn around, at least 10%, he's going to bless in ways that he has never blessed the church before. And that's what he's talking about here. He will make bright the clouds and give us showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Herbert Armstrong died. We began to wander in confusion. And the leaders that have stood up, former ministers who were in Worldwide, and started new groups and told people, everything's going to be okay if you'll just come with us. We're Philadelphia. Everything will be okay. But everything hasn't been okay. And there hasn't been any leader that God has backed and caused worldwide to reoccur. There have been those who said they were going to rebuild it. But they're only trying to rebuild what God just tore down. What good is that? If he tore it down and you try to just build it back the way it was, you're not moving forward. So there's a period here of repentance and changing attitude and realizing that we are poor in spirit, we need to be meek and to be humble and to be repentant, not crowing about how we're the Philadelphians. Just the opposite of what God says to do. So here he says, there's been no one to lead you. You've been troubled. Isaiah 40 and the verses after, chapters after that show that he's going to send help. He's going to raise up a righteous man from the east who came from the north. And he's going to have only one voice that has the truth of the matter. Not eight or ten, but just one. There was no shepherd, he says here. My anger was kindled against the shepherds. He's been angry with the ministry. All of us. None of us were righteous. All of us were proud and vain and thought we were okay spiritually. He doesn't make a distinction here. Everybody's bad but me. That's what the preachers have been saying. And it's wrong. We were all not what we should be, and we all got spewed. So he's talking to the church here, currently. My anger was kindled against the shepherds. I punished the goats. For the eternal of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Now once his anger has been dissipated, 
and 10% have repented and turned to him and will start following him correctly, then he's going to use them in power against Satan and the world, and even those in one sense who have not truly repented, and the message will go to them too. But it's too late for them to come and to be protected and fed. They waited too long, like the ten virgins. Zion was shut out. Even when those who are in Jerusalem see the armies gathering to set up the abomination of Daniel, it says, flee to Zion, and if you don't get there in time, if you hesitate for any reason, hurry. If you hesitate, you'll be killed. And then the door is shut behind them, and no one else is getting in. It's done. The rest of them, whoever they are, you, me, they, will be in the tribulation. So why am I sitting here saying this? in hopes that we do what we need to do to be sure we are there. And you won't find any other voice telling you this story than right here. It's the only place it's being disseminated. If you're listening to other preachers, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not saying that out of vanity. I'm saying it out of the knowledge of what this book says. No one else has this story. They just don't. I defy you. I challenge you. Find somebody that has this story that we talk about all the time here in all of these books, and I'll apologize for what I just said. But you can't find one. It's not there. Maybe that sounds egotistical and vain. Well, I don't mean it that way, brethren, and I very seldom say this. I've said it more a little, little more lately than I have over the last 26 years, but it's crunch time. We're entering this time. And I'll, and I'll let you know that what I am preaching in this message that you're getting didn't come from me. I would have never, if I lived a million years on the face of this earth, have read these scriptures and understood what we today understand. I would not have figured it out. I'll guarantee you that. I would have been off hunting moose or something. I wouldn't have been even trying to get all this figured out. Well, maybe a little, but not, not like it was revealed. I'm not that smart. I'm not that attuned. I would not have come up with this. But God took weak and base, you and me, and revealed these truths to us. So it's not anything that I have done. It's a message God gave and opened my eyes to understand it. And he said, now go say it and live it. So that's where we are. Everybody's going to hear this message eventually. But right now, you can't find it anywhere. My anger was kindled against the shepherds and the goats. But I'll make my people the goodly horse in the battle. 
Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. So God is going to turn power to his little group. Fear not, little flock. It is my pleasure to give you the kingdom and to bless you. God does not use many people. Uh, he has an army of angels. He has heavenly chariots. He has a wall of fire. He has all kinds of ways, and he doesn't need a lot of people. And in fact, he's shown in the past that very thing over and over. He didn't need an army to go after Goliath. He needed one young guy with a slingshot. He didn't need thousands of men to go against the, was the Midianite army there with Gideon? He just kept cutting the number down until they got down to 300, which isn't very big when you've got tens of thousands of men in the valley. But God showed by his power he could do these things. And he's going to do this end-time work basically with two men followed by a remnant of people, 10% of what the church was, who can be used as an example of God's blessing. They have to be there. There has to be somebody to point at, to say, God is doing this. And Ezekiel says over and over and over, they shall know that I am the eternal. It's going to have to be made very clear to them. He's going to do it in several ways. Isaiah 44 and 45 say he's going to uncover his treasures and give them to his people for the temple. And that the world from the east to the west are going to know that he is God. He's going to uncover those at just the right time when he brings a wall of fire to protect them. Because the people of this world who are in charge, the billionaires, know where the promised land is. They have the records from the past. Columbus had maps of this country when he sailed to so-called India. It's known. Hitler had people right here in this area looking for those treasures during World War II. And I've talked to, personally, people who witnessed those Germans here. And they even were clear about what they were doing. This thing is known. It's not under a bushel. There are people who know where the Aztec treasures are supposed to be. John Wesley Powell came out here looking for them, allegedly surveying. The Mormons have been here looking for them for quite some time, and have found some, but they haven't found the cache of God's treasures and brought it out for the world to see. They're here in the promised land. And God will open that up at a certain time, and the world is going to be gaga-eyed over it. It's coming. And he will protect it. So God is going to give his people strength. The corner, the nail, the battle bow, power. And 
They shall be as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight them, because the Eternal is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. If anybody tries to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouth and burns them up. And they pronounce plagues. And the nations of the world cannot stand against that. They can't do a thing about it. That's why he said to Zerubbabel in chapter 4, Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the eternal. He is the only one that can provide that kind of power. They're not going to fly around in jet bombers. They'll just speak. And people won't like it. It's not going to be like Jonah going to Nineveh. They're not going to repent. And I will strengthen the house of Judah. And I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. Be placed in the promised land. And they shall be as though I have not cast them off. We'll have blessings in such abundance that it will be like we were never spewed out. For I am the eternal their God, and will hear them. Isn't that nice? God hears not sinners. Therefore, if we repent and do what we should, he'll listen. He'll hear. Several other scriptures say, I'll give my ear. I will hear. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. Right here in this country, this is where it's going to happen. God works in patterns. Where did he set Herbert Armstrong up? Southwestern United States, Ephraim. Where is he going to set up this end-time ladder temple? Herbert Armstrong being the former temple, the one coming being the ladder. Southwestern United States. They'll go from, as Amos says, coast to coast in the north and in the east, and they won't find what they're looking for. The only place he leaves out is the southwest because that's where the answers are going to come from. For the original promised land started out, it was later expanded to the whole nation, the continent, but it started out from Provo to the Colorado River and just inside the Great Basin in Nevada to somewhat east of here. Here's the dimensions in the Bible. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad, their hearts shall rejoice in the eternal. That expression, rejoice as through wine, or make a noise as through wine, is how it is put in a couple, three places. And that always kind of puzzled me. How do you make a noise through wine? Do you blow in it? Or do you put a straw in it and blow and make it burble? Or what's this noise is through wine? No, it's attitude. It's reaction. People start having some wine, and first thing you know, they're laughing and talking and having a joyful time. Because it loosens a certain amount of our uh, inhibitions, and we're able to easier talk. So, you hear a lot of laughter. Now, that's good drinking of wine. I mean, there's some people that drink and get mean, and some get rowdy, and some get amorous, and, you know, whatever. But this is talking about the joy that can come from the proper use 
of a people that has been blessed, and they have some wine, and they want to laugh and joyfully sing before God. That's what this is talking about. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the eternal. So the wine that he's talking about here creates an atmosphere of rejoicing in God. That is a wonderful and righteous use of alcohol. Now we tend to serve it not very often here on uh, around the feast mainly, or maybe at Purim sometime when uh, it is the time to rejoice. Festival of Lights, for instance. We tend to bring it out more. We don't usually sit it out, set it out uh, for a weekly potluck. But at those special times, the bottles appear. And we should be rejoicing as through wine. That's what the expression means. I only recently kind of thought that out and realized what he was saying. Rejoicing before God. With, and that's what he tells us, doesn't he? When you go to the feast, you can have whatever you want, including strong drink. That's right there in Deuteronomy. So, when we rejoice and worship God, alcohol is a wonderful part of it used properly. Misused and abused creates problems. I had to send a man home from the feast one time back when I was in Miami. And uh, he didn't have a drinking problem. He wasn't drinking. He was standing there wetting his pants as he told me he wasn't drinking. And he could barely stand up. So I had to send him home from the feast. Now that was sad. It was truly sad that he was out of control to the point and he had been this way for the whole feast. <laughs> I had to send him home. Now, he didn't get to finish keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. That's sad. So we need to be sure we use it in the proper way and don't get, let it get out of balance. That's a whole other sermon, but it just came to mind here. Rejoice in the eternal and be happy and drink. But don't have so much that you stand there wet your pants saying, I'm not drinking. That's kind of beyond what God would have us do. And we've all misused that at one time or another, I'm sure, or most of us. Some people don't even like alcohol, so that's fine too. But God intended it for a good use. I will hiss for them and gather them. For I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. Now, that can only be talking about true church members. Redemption, being redeemed by God, is something that Christ our Redeemer does. And only those who are repentant. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. He's going to bring that remnant, and God is going to begin to bless them, and people that were left behind in far countries are going to see the blessing that God brings on them. I will hiss for them. Hiss 
not like a snake hissing uh, as a danger warning, but, hey, come on over here, come on, that kind of a hiss, and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased, and be sowed among the people. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, and gather them out of Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. So he'll gather them to the original promised land out of the Gentile countries where we've been. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So God is going to destroy these Gentile armies. Now he's going to give them 42 months. Times of the Gentiles. Three and a half years. 1260 days. The time when the two will go up to preach repentance to them. And then they're going to be destroyed. And I will strengthen them in the eternal, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the eternal. So God is going to bless his church again. He's going to draw his remnant together. He is going to use them as a witness against the world. They have to have two formal witnesses, but the rest of the remnant church will also be with them as a witness that God is God. So you've been called to be a witness of God. Now that is an incredible responsibility to live up to. When people see us, they should see God. When they see us, they should see how God lives, how God thinks, how God works. Because we are all types of the Father and the Son. Every one of us. And so will all those who are drawn. We will be here to show the world what God is like. Now, he will not appear in person. Christ will be here with us and dwell with us, but I don't know that he will appear where he can be seen. God will use human witnesses. And the whole world will look at us and hopefully see God. That's what he's called us to do, is be that for him. It is a serious, heavy responsibility, but it is also a great honor, a great privilege that God would choose some of us weak in base to confound the mighty. Those scriptures Christ used in the New Testament are going to come to pass. He said, be a light to the world. I will call the weak in the base to confound the mighty. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It will confound the billionaire elites that there's this little bunch of people that they can't touch. Oh, that's going to frost them. And they will hate those two that go out and pronounce this to them. And they will try to kill them. And it won't work. So finally one day it does at the end of 42 months. And all oh, will they think it's a happy time. They will rejoice as through wine and send gifts to each other and think that they have finally conquered those people and that Satan will rule. 
They better enjoy those three days, three and a half days, because then it'll end. And then they will have the seven last plagues brought upon them. God's going to win this thing, brethren. Be on the winning side. 